So this morning, we continue our Sermon on the Mount series. I had something in my mind. It's gone. That is gone. All right. So, Sermon on the Mount series. And, um, you know, I, I, I've been really challenged by this series. Last week, we spoke about reconciliation and forgiveness. I shared that, you know, that was something that God was putting on my heart. So, just as accountability, I did what I needed to do. And so, you all need to do what you need to do and reported to Pastor Beck, who will be taking uh, a little checkbox. It's like, have you forgiven? Have you reconciled? Have you reached out? Yeah, we'll set up a little confessional box. It will be like the breastfeeding corner, except that you will be meeting with Pastor Beck. No. Uh, But I think this is a really challenging um, message series for myself and also for the church. And um, let me, I want to frame things today because um, we're going to go further into the Sermon on the Mount and we're going to hit up stuff that I hope is going to be challenging. Um, but I was listening uh, with Beck last night uh, a little bit about church history, and there was a Rwanda um, genocide that took place in the 1950s. And over 100 days, over 500,000 people were killed. 500,000 people in 100 days. There's an average of 5,000 people were killed in this genocide per day, per day. And the crazy thing about this is that Rwanda at that point in time was 90% Christians. Want to sink in? Rwandans were killing each other. And 9 out of 10 of the people that were involved in this genocide said they were Christians. And so there was this pastor, he, this, this young man really, he had gone to another country to go through seminary and he had come back and he was going through all of these refugee camps that were created because of what had happened. And um, his heart was stirred and he wanted to bring reconciliation and forgiveness to this nation and, and he's gone on and he's done a whole bunch of amazing things. But a question that plagued him was how can a nation that is 90% Christian, how can a nation full of people that are like us, perhaps, sitting in this room. How can that result in the killing of 5,000 people per day for 100 days? And his conclusion is that even though there were a whole bunch of saved people, there were very few discipled people. And he made this comment that if people knew that at the core of their being, they are Christian above all, perhaps this genocide would have been avoided. You see, what we are talking about as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is, is a sense of this is how we are meant to live. We, we said this before, this is about the inauguration message of the incoming king, saying this is what his kingdom is like. So if you are a Christian, and you are listening to what Jesus is saying, then you will live out what Jesus is saying and fundamentally shift how culture sees relationships and sees life within the bounds of the kingdom. 
And that's what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And I hope that this has become more and more uh, like you're, you're placing all of this together because it's quite often when we read many of these passages in the Sermon on the Mount, we cherry pick and we lose the context that this is not about some recommendations on what a uh, a nice life is, and so you kind of pick, no, no, this is about the king saying this is what the kingdom is like. And, and, and sometimes Jesus seems to use what we might call exaggeration or hyperbole to describe certain things, when I think that he's not necessarily trying to, to go to the far ends in order to make a point. I think that Jesus is being very selective about how he's talking about things, because he wants his kingdom to look different. So you can call yourself Christian, but are you Christian are two separate things altogether. And there's something in me that is burning with this desire. I've been reading about church history, and did you know that in the early church, you could only attend what was called the love feast, which is the weekly gathering where they would feast together and hear the teaching after you were baptized. Baptism only took place once a year. And people will go through months and months of teaching and training to help them understand this is what the kingdom is like and then get baptized before they were enjoying the community. Why? Because they were protecting the community. We've kind of gone the other way around. Grace to you. Grace to you. You sneeze. Oh, bless you. And we kind of make all of these things about the kingdom kind of really simple and kind of like you don't have to change because... God already loves you. When Jesus is in Matthew's gospel, his first description of kingdom life doesn't allow you to stay the same. It says, if you want me in your life, I'm not changing. You are. Can you imagine going to, you know, the creator of the world and saying, I like the way that I am. So if you want to interact with me, you're going to have to put up with all my faults. And you're going to have to put up with all the sin in my life because I'm not going to change. And then we say, that's what a gracious God will look like. Well, would a gracious father allow his kid to go around and play in the mud and say, well, let me just join you and let's just be the mud family or would a gracious father actually clean the kid up and say, hey, if you're going to come into my house, you wash that mud off you, you change the way that you're living. Not that you have to actually tell a kid <laughs> you change the way that they're living. But you know, that's just the analogy, all right? It kind of falls apart. But you get what I mean? Would a gracious dad just go to his kid and say, you do what you want? You know what that is? It's a cowardly, spineless dad, honestly who doesn't want to have difficult conversations. You know, I'm scared of the day that I need to have the porn chat with Sam. It's weird, it's awkward. I'm scared to have difficult conversations about, you know, attitudes and, and, and the way that he's treating people and all of that. I know it's necessary, but there are gonna be moments where I'm gonna have to correct my son's attitudes and that is what makes me a gracious father that I don't write off my son because he's done something wrong. I bring correction to my son because I know that he is bigger and better than his worst moments. And so I think when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we're not, we have to see this in a lens that 
don't just call yourself Christian. This is what it means to be Christian. This is what it really is all about. And so with that in mind, we're going to uh, cover the rest of chapter 5. Uh, I thought that eight weeks and three chapters was way too long, and I was like, kind of like worried. We're, we're probably not going to finish the whole Sermon on the Mount, just <laughs> putting it out there. Um, but we're going to try our best, but we're going to speed through the rest of Matthew chapter 5 uh, today. And I want you to try to catch what Jesus is saying, because each and every one of these segments that we're going to read today starts with a little phrase that, uh, that where Jesus says, you have heard that it is said, or something along those lines. And so Jesus is tying all of these different segments together. And I want you to think, as we go on this journey, what is Jesus trying to do about these different aspects of life? What is he trying to teach us by bringing up all of these different aspects of life? All right, so we will start with Matthew 5 verses 21 to 26, which we did cover last week. And so I'm not going to read it out to you again. Uh, and this is where Jesus takes the law of murder we talked about it last week, and he actually expands his usage and says, if you are angry, it's going to be seen in the same light as murder. You're going to be tried for that anger. All right? And then he goes on and says that reconciliation is the way of the kingdom. And so uh, one thing I did not say is that when it, Jesus says, you have heard that is said, uh, and we did talk about the Pharisees taking the law, but you also need to know uh, that in uh, Exodus, let me find my notes, Exodus 20 verse 13, in the Old Testament, in the, uh, in the Torah, this is the law that the Jewish people have been living by. It does say, do not murder. All right, so... Do not murder is a part of the law that they were living by. And Jesus takes that law and he increases, he elevates, he raises the bar with it. All right, so we're going to continue in the next section. I know it does feel like I'm going to be powering through a lot today, so hang on. But at the end, we're going to tie it all together because this is, I think it's better that we read all of these segments together uh, in this study. Matthew 5, 27 to 30 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. So what is Jesus doing here? He's taking the law against adultery, which is Exodus 20 verse 14. So it is in the Old Testament. And he says that lustful intent is the same as adultery. So it's similar to last, uh, the, the last section where he takes the law and he says, you know what, you have heard that they said adultery is bad. You know what, lustful intent is also bad. So, so you, can you see that there is something that Jesus had done with both of these laws? He's interacted with them and he's spoken about them as though there is a higher standard that is required in the kingdom. And then he goes on and he tells us that we need to take drastic action to stay away from sin. And did you notice that he says that if you keep sinning or if you live in sin, your whole body can get thrown into hell. I want you to notice that. 
Jesus is not mucking around here. And we take to Jesus' um, portion of the Bible where, you know, he has come not to uh, uh, judge but to bring salvation and that he's going to deal with all of our sin. But in this passage, Jesus says that if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off before your whole body gets chucked into hell. This is serious stuff. I think what Jesus is trying to teach us is that as we live within the boundaries, remember the law is the boundaries. We talked about that last week. The law is the boundaries. But as we live within the boundaries, if we keep trying to get close to the boundaries, we are liable to actually cross those boundaries. And when we cross those boundaries, the God of grace doesn't say that, sure, you can have whatever salvation you want crossing those boundaries still results in consequences. And possibly one of those consequences is full judgment because you've never really lived under the grace of God. You know, one of my friends used to say this, when we come in contact with the grace of God, we will want to stop sinning. When we come in contact with the grace of God, we will actually want to learn how to live within the boundaries that God has set for us. When we come in contact with a loving God, our behaviors necessarily must change in alignment with the kingdom. If it doesn't change, then we're saying, God, I need you to save me from my filth. And then after God saves us from our filth, we say, but I like playing in my filth. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not how the kingdom works. I saved you from that, so don't go back to that. Rather, learn how to live within the boundaries of what I'm doing, uh, or, or my kingdom and what we are uh, to live like. So in other words, Jesus is also showing us that it is our responsibility to live in the ways of the kingdom. It is your responsibility and my responsibility to understand that there's a kingdom culture, kingdom values, kingdom principles, kingdom ways, and it's my responsibility to take it on. The Rwandan genocide happened not because God was absent, but I think it's because people had a shallow understanding of their responsibilities as Christians. And in church history, when you read through the history, there were times where in the name of Christianity, Terrible things were done. And why did that happen? One scholar said is because that is where shallow Christianity, shallow Christianity was the kind of Christianity that was taught and lived out. Deep Christianity was lost. And this is my fear. That in pursuing the power of God, and the grace of God, we're not pursuing God himself. And we are pursuing the top layer, the stuff that is frothy, perhaps, and nice. Now, I don't want to make it sound like I don't believe that God wants to do miracles or bring breakthrough or bring healing or bring perhaps even prosperity or, or breakthrough in our lives. I believe that God does all of those things, but the main way that we are blessed is that we're living close to God. Not because my bank account looks better, not because I drive a flashier car, not because I have all of these comforts, but my greatest comfort is God Himself. 
The whole journey of Christianity is that if my eye causes me to look away from God, I'm going to make sure that that doesn't stop me from getting close to God. I'm going to get rid of that in order to get closer to God. And it sounds drastic, but man, maybe it should be. You know, if your eye causes you to sin, if you've got a computer that you're watching porn on at home, get rid of your computer. Get rid of the things that is going to cause you to sin. Get rid of the friendships that are taking you down. Get rid of the workplace that is toxic, that is taking you away from God. Get rid of those romantic stories. Get rid of Netflix. Get rid of Facebook. Get rid of, oh no, I can't do that. Stop it. Is it better to live with God or without God? Your choice. If Instagram is causing you to walk away from God, get rid of it. Whatever idol, whatever desire, and that's where lustful desire in the Bible is not just necessarily about sex, but is about that super overdrive that we sometimes get as human beings towards things that are not of God. That's why sexual desire is often used as an analogy of idolatry, because we pursue things that are not of God. And Jesus says, get rid of anything that will cause you to go and desire other things. I'm not saying that we're meant to be hermits, but I'm saying that if we are, need, if we can, if we are to live in this world, we need to first understand that we are not of this world. And that my primary, and in fact, my necessarily, my main and overwhelmingly big identity is Christian. Is not Australian. Is not a father. Is not husband. Is not good person even, is not creative, is not successful. My identity primarily and overwhelmingly is Christian. That's what this is all about. Let's keep going. Matthew 5, 31 to 32. It was also said in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, that's where it would sit, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, now I want you to understand this, that in Matthew 19, the disciples has a conversation with um, Jesus about this very topic of divorce. They have this conversation. He says, Jesus, who, who then should get married? None of us want to get married. It's too hard. This kind of teaching is not hard in 2022. This teaching has been hard since the beginning of time. Because lustful desire plays such a huge role in many of our lives. And if we don't deal with that, we end up needing to face this issue of divorce. So Jesus takes this law of divorce, whoever divorces his wife, and he gets rid of the second half, or he narrows how the second half is going to be used. And so in the previous ones, with anger, uh, with murder, he actually says it's not just anger, murder is actually anger. With um, 
What was the second one? With adultery, he says, not just adultery is lustful intent. But then when we come to this one, he says, whoever uh, wants to engage in divorce, it used to be I can divorce anyone as long as I give them a divorce certificate. And Jesus says, no, no, no. This is the only time that you can use divorce. And so he actually narrows what this is about. So if we are going to go with the theme of what Jesus is doing, what is he trying to raise? I think that if he's actually trying to raise the standard of marriage in this particular law. In the previous ones, he's trying to you know, make sure that we're not trying to harm and kill people. This time around, he's trying to say, no, 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 you learn how to work out your marriage. That's what this is all about. Marriage is important, it's sacred, and it's meant to be treated as such. And so I understand that this is not in a, 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 how our culture looks at it, but this is how the kingdom looks at it. And I know that people do struggle with it, but guess what? It has been a struggle for over 2,000, probably since the beginning of time, but it's something that we must engage with as this is part of Jesus' teachings. Let's keep going. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Don't worry, we're going to visit all of these again. Again, you have heard it said um, to those of old, and this one is in Numbers 30, verse 2. And this is what it says, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair uh, white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, out of all the segments, I was like, what is this all about, right? And I think it's because we lost sight of that kind of culture of making oaths. Basically, people would have made oaths in order to convince someone else to go into some kind of partnership. Right? It's like, I swear to you, I will get this done. I swear by God, I'm going to do this for you. I swear to you, I will not go against you. Whatever it is, there was this kind of sense of like... I'm going to be good on my word. And they use this as a way of doing it. And so scholars say that this law in Numbers 30 verse 2 was a law to prevent lying. That's what it's all about. And so Jesus then seems to say that uh, you, don't, you don't lie by basically going through on your word. But Jesus actually goes Further than that, and I think that what he is saying is that you are not allowed to exaggerate in order to manipulate people. Previously, it was about being a person of your word, and now Jesus is actually expanding that, and he's going further than that, and he's saying any attempt to manipulate people is sinful, is wrong. So if you will, I think that Jesus is trying to raise the standard of our speech and our interactions. And I think that it is hilarious that in today's day and age, that this is probably one of those things that is so hidden and that we all use probably in some way, shape or form. And we really need to look into this. I think that this is actually the most insidious because uh, this is about how we speak to each other and we cover things up, we exaggerate certain things, we present ourselves in certain ways in order to have certain interactions. And Jesus is saying, no, let what you say be simply yes or no, no gray areas. 
This is not saying that you're not allowed to say maybe, but what I think Jesus is trying is, you see, if any of these things that Jesus is saying becomes the new law, that if we do this, we are sinful and judged and all of that, then it becomes really weird. Jesus then kind of says you can only allow, you're only allowed to say yes or no. No, this is not what Jesus is saying, but he's trying to raise the standard of our speech. Make sense? Following me? Let's keep going. Two more sections and then we're going to pull it all together. Matthew 5, 38 to 42, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tuning, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is referencing Leviticus 24 verses 19 to 20. You see, there the Mosaic law actually allows for retaliation. That was part of their justice system. It says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If someone blinds you, you're allowed to blind them back. If someone maims you, you're allowed to maim them also. It was this uh, system of retributive justice, so to speak. But here, Jesus completely flips it around. He doesn't allow for retaliation or retribution, but instead, he says to be generous to those who hurt us. Think about that. That's not nice. And I think if we see this as simply a law, we're going to miss it. And so I think we're going to need to come back to this one in a moment, because I think what Jesus was doing was progressively building on how we are to understand the law, and he's getting to some really hard places. He's getting now to the times where inside we have been hurt. It's now no longer just about my lustful desires and doing something uh, that makes me kind of uh, pleasured and happy. This is actually about when I've been hurt, and this is getting real serious. And especially for that day and that age and all the persecution that was about to happen to the early church, this is the kind of stuff that was very real. And I think we need to think about what it means for us today. And we're going to do that soon. Finally, Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Can you believe we've done that much scripture? You have heard that it was said, and this one is in Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Actually, to be fair, Leviticus 19, verse 18 Sorry, not, not eight. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says you shall love your neighbor. It doesn't include and hate your enemy part. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now that rings in my mind because in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemaker for they will be called sons of God. So here maybe we're getting a clue into how Jesus sees peacemaking. It is loving your enemies. It's praying for those who persecute you. Continuing on, for he makes the sun rise in evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
See, see, Jesus kind of brings this into the God element, and he says God gives rain to both the just and unjust. He shows kindness to all peoples. That is something that God does, and so he says in the same way, you do that. Perfection as a Christian is not that you memorize the Bible start to finish. It's not that you've lived in a monastery with no interaction. It is that you learn how to love all people at all times. That is what makes us perfect. That is what Jesus is saying. So, why does it why do they say you shall love your enemy and hate uh, sorry, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Where did that come from? I think that's because the Pharisees in interpreting the law about loving your neighbors said, "Well, God says love your neighbors, but it doesn't say anything about loving your enemies." So, it must mean that we get to hate our enemies. I mean, it's pretty human to think that, right? We love us. I love us. I don't like them, but I love us. And that is kind of what was normal. But here Jesus is saying that, no, you don't get to do that. And so Jesus takes this law about loving your enemies and he extends it, sorry, loving your neighbors, and he extends it to loving your enemies. All right, so we've gone through all the texts, all the different laws that Jesus specifically interacts with, and we're going to see a pattern, all right? I have made a list for you guys, so let's go back. Jesus takes the law on murder, and he extends it to anger. He takes the law on adultery, and he extends it to lust. He takes it, the law on divorce, and this time instead of extending it, he limits it to sexual immorality. And then he takes the law on oaths and he restricts speech further. So these are two narrowing of what we are allowed to do, so to speak. He takes the law on retaliation and then he flips it around and he says that we need to be generous to those who seek to hurt us. And then he takes the law on loving your neighbor and then he extends it to loving your enemies. So what is Jesus trying to do here? Is he trying to give us a new law? Is he trying to give us a new list of behaviors that we are meant to now live by? Is that what this is about? Because I think that that is what makes us legalistic Christians, where we take Jesus' words and we are trying to look for the black and white, what am I allowed to do and what am I not allowed to do? That is what the law is doing. The law necessarily needs to be black and white because when it is gray, who is right and who's wrong? The law is ineffective because it doesn't help us to know what is right and wrong if it's not clear. However, how many know that laws, uh, that most of our human interactions are in the gray area? I am not likely to murder any of you guys. Praise the Lord. And I believe that very few, if any of you, are capable of that kind of behaviors as well. I don't know all of you that well, so maybe. But I know myself, I'm not going to kill you. That is nice, black and white, we're not going to do it. But am I going to talk behind your back because I'm angry with you? Am I going to, in my heart, devalue the worth that God has placed in your life? 
Am I going to, because of my anger, see you as a lesser person and passive-aggressively do things with that thought in mind? I might not commit adultery, but I might spend too long looking at something I shouldn't look at. I might not govern my intent in the, like, you get what I mean? Divorce and, sorry, adultery is pretty black and white, but what about all this gray area interacting with all of these other things? I might just put on movies and I say, I'm immune to all that stuff. No, I'm not. I've got stuff on the inside of me that is hanging and going off. And Jesus is saying that, yes, you know all the boundaries. But do you understand what the boundaries are trying to protect? And by only looking for the black and white, we forget to live how to live in the middle. You see, when we are looking at the Old Testament laws and we're saying, oh, what a harsh God, oh, all this stuff, we forget that those laws were to help create one of the most benevolent cultures in that day and time. See, the law has a purpose, and we're not here to study the law to ensure that we're obeying the black and white nature of the law. That's what happens when we do that. We start to say, yes, yes, I know, love my neighbor, but I get to hate my enemy. <laughs> and Jesus is like, you've forgotten what the purpose of the law was for. I don't think that it was by any uh, a coincidence that Jesus specifically chose these six laws to interact with. You see, he could have talked about the offerings at, um, at, the, uh, at the temple. He could have talked about uh, the ceremonial washings that were required. He could have talked about the Sabbath. He could have talked about all those things. But Jesus, in his inauguration message, specifically chooses these six laws. Why did he choose these six laws? It's because he wanted us to realize that the laws of the kingdom often govern how we treat one another. The purpose of the law is to create community. The purpose of any laws is to ensure that we can live in the community that we want to be a part of. Yes, even the Australian laws that are being created is with the understanding that these laws will make it better to live in Australia. It's not so that we will have more laws to study. When Parliament makes a new law, often no one even knows how to look for that new law. Because the purpose of Parliament creating new law is not so that we all go and study the law, but it's so that it governs how we live with one another. And Jesus is saying, we need to come back to what was the purpose of the law. Not just murder, but about dealing with anger and enmity between brothers and sisters. It's not just about adultery, but treating each other with respect and dignity. It is not just about lying and, and swearing oaths in order to... It's, it's about how we speak to each other and create community. You see, one of the things that is lost for many of us, myself included, is that the Bible is about creating a community of God and for God. 
And so when we look at what Jesus is doing, he's not trying to teach us new laws. He's trying to say, guys, you've been so focused on the law that you've forgotten how to live with each other. But I wonder, maybe on the flip side for where we are today, is that we've so forgotten the law that we've never tried to live with one another. The Rwandan genocide, nine out of 10 of them were Christians and they still killed 5,000 people a day for 100 days. Have we forgotten how to live with one another? I heard this historian talking about how towards the Second World War, there were three dominant um, ideologies coming out in societies, and that was communism, fascism, and radical individualism. Through the Second Second World War, and then through the years after that, communism proved to be an unviable ideology on how we live with one another. Fascism also proved to be unreliable in governing our behaviors. And so our culture has become more and more radically individualized. That is what historians are saying. That's where we are today. And it's left a lot of people feeling extremely lost because we were not created to be individuals alone. We were created to be individuals in community. Individualism by itself is not necessarily wrong. It's how we understand that each and every person has unique gifts, designs, worth, value, but is made in the context of the community. If, it's for, if community is for the individual alone, then sure, don't murder, but you can hate every person in your heart. Sure, don't commit adultery, but you can sleep around all you like. Sure, you know, make oaths and deal with them, but you can lie in order to get what you want. I think Jesus is saying that there's a higher way of living. And honestly, I'm not sure that I lived this out fully. We might not murder, but do we reconcile? We might not commit adultery, but do we interact with lust in our hearts? We might not divorce, but do we have healthy marriages? We might not swear oaths, but do we speak without manipulation? We might not retaliate or seek retribution, but are we generous when we are hurt? We might love our neighbors, but do we extend that grace to our enemies? Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you understand that the kingdom includes the interactions that we have between people. 
And can you imagine what this community and the community of the kingdom can be like if we all took these purposes and we examine our everyday life and we go, how am I supposed to live in this moment? See, I totally get it. And the first few is like, oh yeah, yeah, no worries, Jesus. I'm not going to murder anyone. I'm not going to commit adultery. But the more I got to the part of learning how to live with people when it is difficult, it got difficult. <laughs> That's the whole purpose of it. It's challenging. When Jesus says, a new command I give to you, that you don't just love one another as you love yourself, he then elevates it in other parts of the gospel and he says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. And then he proceeds to live those things out in his life. Some people say that the Sermon on the Mount is to show us how weak and useless we are and therefore how much we need the grace of God. But when I think of a statement like that, I'm like, but that's what the Old Testament is for. That was to show us that we can't even obey 613 laws. And so Jesus is not trying to show us our inadequacies, but he's trying to show us the way of the kingdom. And so when you read these things and you go, man, I don't know if I can do that. Fair point. But are you going to try? Are you going to give it a go? Are you going to reconcile when there's anger in your heart? Are you going to limit the lust in your life? Are you going to speak with honesty and integrity? Are you going to cherish marriages and marriage for yourself? You don't get multiple marriages. But do you cherish marriage? Do you deal with people that have hurt you and are against you with grace and with love and with generosity? Do you stop this whole idea of the insider versus the outsider? Those things are what creates the Christian kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus is our king over. If we can get the band up this morning and if we can get the host team to prepare, we're going to have communion today. And one of the things that I've learned that I was really quite inspired by is that the early church didn't take communion um, simply to reflect and, re and think about how Jesus died for my sin. That's not what the early church did. Rather, the early church had this perspective that communion was done to remind people of the victory that Jesus has already won and therefore the life that we are meant to live as a part of it. Did you hear that? We're all distracted because you're all like, hmm, which cup has the most Ribena? Hmm. Where's that big cracker? Oh, look at them. Kingdom life, people. Generosity. I want to say this again because I think it's a really important thing. The early church didn't take communion simply to remember that Jesus died and rose again and that my sins are washed away. The early church did communion to remember the victorious life that Jesus calls us to live. 
See, Jesus died. He died while we were sinners. And the Bible describes this as atonement, redemption, grace. And many of us know that. If you don't, please, this is one of the most wonderful gifts that we can have, that Christ would die for us, that we can have eternal life. But today I want us to focus on what the early church used to do and think about the victorious life that you are called to live in the light of the crucified and resurrected Savior. And that's why I think that Jesus says, before you offer a sacrifice at the altar, if there's anyone that has any issues with you, you go deal with it. Because what you're holding in your hands is a covenant that Jesus makes with you and that you are saying yes to, that I am living not for myself any longer. I am living for the kingdom because my life has been purchased at a price, the price of our Savior on the cross. Jesus already paid that price. And now as we take that in our hands, the question that we have is, how am I supposed to live in the light of that? What grievances do I need to deal with? What unforgiveness do I need to deal with? What lust do I need to deal with? What selfish ambition do I need to deal with? What stinginess of the soul do I need to deal with? Let's put it in a positive way. What life-giving relationships are you meant to sow into? What generosity are you meant to live out this week? What purity are you meant to live in this week? God, I pray that as we look at your sacrifice, we understand that that was a moment that was designed to impact and transform the way that we live for the rest of eternity and that already started today. I pray that if there's anything that has been said that is difficult, that is challenging in our hearts, in our souls, in our behaviors, in our life, in our perspectives, God, I pray that we see the cross. We see how you took that punishment and that suffering on our behalf. And you took it without a complaint, And in many moments, you just simply stayed silent because you saw the cross. And in that moment, I think you also saw us. And you thought about the wonder of reconciling with humanity, and you went all the way. I pray that we have that same heart. We have the same inclination. We have the same desires. If not, God, place it in us. Even in this moment as we take this bread and we take this cup, help us to change our perspective of what life is meant to be. So I thank you, Jesus. I pray this in your name.
Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.